Welcome to the RUF City Campus podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit give to ruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We are continuing our series tonight through the book of Exodus, which is about the God who rescues. It's about the rescuing God. And, um, you know, if you haven't been with us at RUF before, this is what you see is what you get. This is what we do. We, we sing, we pray, we eat food, um, and we open God's word. And the reason that we open God's word is because a couple of reasons. Well, actually, there are a lot of reasons. I'll just give you two tonight. One of the reasons is because if you are a Christian, the best way for you to grow in your faith, for your faith to be deepened, is for you to immerse yourself in God's Word, for you to hear um, and wrestle with the teaching of God's Word. So that's one great reason uh, to study the Bible. Now, another great reason to study the Bible is if you are not a Christian and you are at least mildly curious about what this whole Christianity thing is about, the best way to do that is to listen to the Bible. Um, So that's why we do that. And, And we're studying the book of Exodus this semester, which is the second book of the Bible. And as we said last week, Exodus is the true story that helps us make sense of our lives. It's the true story that helps us make sense of our lives. Now, you may not realize this about yourself, but you you actually want that. We, We all long for something to come in, someone or something to come into our lives and help us make sense out of the seemingly random things that happen to us, Um, the frustrating things that happen to us, the wonderful things that happen to us. We all uh, need something to help us. We we want something to help us make sense out of our lives. I I don't uh, really watch the show that much anymore, but my wife and I used to watch The Bachelor a good bit. True confessions, guilty pleasure. Um, We used to watch The Bachelor. And we noticed when we were watching The Bachelor that there was a theme that when these young ladies get rejected... And they get in the rejection limousine to go home after they've been at the Bachelor Mansion. And they they all get in this limousine and they they drive away and they're all crying. They're like, I don't understand. He was dating 15 other girls. I don't understand what happened. Um, But they all are basically asking the same question. They ask it in different forms, but they're essentially all asking the same question. And that question is this. Why? Why did this happen? And they ask it in different forms. Basically, it comes in two different forms. One form is the what's wrong with him line of questioning, right? What's wrong with him? Why couldn't he see how great we are together? Why couldn't he see our connection? Why couldn't he see how incredible I am? All those other girls are bozos, but I'm wonderful. Why couldn't he see that, right? The other line is what's wrong with me? Uh, What's wrong with me? Was I not pretty enough? Was I not funny enough? Uh, was I not engaging enough? What's wrong with me? But, but at bottom, both of those lines of questioning are essentially about why. Why did this happen? Now, you don't have to be a contestant, a rejected contestant on The Bachelor to ask that question. You guys are asking that question all the time. Why? Why is this particular thing happening to me? Why is this the thing that's going on in my life right now? Why is this particular thing happening in the world right now? Why is this What's going on? We need something to help us make sense. 
of the good and the bad and the ugly that's going on in our lives. And here, in Exodus chapter 2, God answers. And he helps us make sense of the why question. So let's look together at Exodus. We're going to read the very last verse of chapter 1 and then the entirety of chapter 2. It's a long passage. Stay with me. You can follow along in your handout. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Since this is God's word and not my own, let's pray and ask for his help as we study it this evening. Lord Jesus, we do indeed need your help. I need your help. Would you come and be our teacher tonight? 
Help us to see things about ourselves that we wouldn't ordinarily see. Help us to see things about you that we would not ordinarily see. Help us to see Jesus and his goodness and his beauty here in this passage tonight. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you took a snapshot of the life of Steve Jobs 45 years ago, you would never have guessed in a million years that he would become such a significant figure in creativity, in technology, in business. You just never would have guessed. If you looked at his life 45 years ago, you never would have thought, that guy is going to be important and incredible. Because 45 years ago, he started college at Reed College in Oregon. And after a semester, he dropped out. And then he went back later on to take not a, uh, like a technology-related course, or a programming course or anything like that. He took a calligraphy course, of all things, just to audit, not for credit, just audit. Um, And that was it for him in college. And then a few years after that, he gets a job with Atari, and you think, okay, maybe this is when Steve Jobs starts to sort of lay the foundation for his great career, and he gets a job with Atari, and then you know what he decides? He decides to quit. And the reason he decided to quit was not because he he had some great idea and he wanted to go build some great company. He decided to quit because he wanted to go to India and do LSD. It's true. So that's exactly what he did. He goes to India. He backpacks around India for a while. He does a bunch of drugs. Now, if you were looking at the life of Steve Jobs 45 years ago, there's no way you would have guessed that he would become this iconic CEO. There's no way. But Steve Jobs himself, later on in his life, he's reflecting on that particular period of of his life. And he says, you can't, uh, this is what he said, he said, you can't connect the dots looking forward, but only looking backward. And so he said, what he, what he actually realized is as he reflected on that period of his life, that that particular period of his life is what shaped him into the man, into the CEO that he eventually became. And so he talks about that calligraphy course that he took for audit and how that shaped his creative vision and that that creative vision became the, the hallmark, the cornerstone of, of the work that Apple was doing during the Steve Jobs era. He talks about going to India and doing all those drugs Disclaimer, um, RUF's official position is against (laughs) psychedelic drugs. But this is what Steve Jobs said. He said it expanded his mind, and it was the breeding ground for Apple's countercultural spirit. So that particular period of his life, you would have looked at it and said, this guy is nothing, he's a loser. He doesn't know what he's doing. But that particular period of life had such a profound effect on the man that he became. And what he said is, looking back, The things that seemed random were actually working together, doing something significant and beautiful. The things that seemed random were actually working together, doing something significant and beautiful. Even when it seemed like nothing was happening, something significant and beautiful was happening. Now, the the Hebrew people, in this particular passage, there are a lot of uh, random things happening to them. And they are not good. And they are not indifferent things. They are very bad things happening to them. They are under a heavy burden of slavery. Pharaoh is ordering the murder of their sons. It seems as though God has forgotten them. You know, these are the people, it's mentioned at the end of the passage, these are the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people to whom God gave these magnificent promises. We talked about this last week, that that they were going to be a nation that grew so large they outnumbered the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. That God was going to put them in this land flowing with milk and honey where they would flourish beyond their wildest imagination. That God would actually use them to bless all the nations of the earth. These are the people, the heirs of those promises. And it seems as though God has completely 
forgotten them. And yet, for all of Pharaoh's attempts to extinguish the descendants of Abraham, he can't. He can't, he just can't quite seem to snuff them out. Why? Uh, The fancy theological word to answer that question is providence. Providence. Simply put, what what providence means is that God is providing. That even and actually especially when it seems as though God is absent, that he is not doing anything, when when there are all these seemingly random moments happening, that they're actually building into something significant and beautiful. That what he is doing in his providence is he is bending history towards the rescue of his people for his glory. He he is bending history towards the rescue of his people for his glory. The Apostle Paul makes this explicit in Romans chapter 8. Some of you may know this verse. Paul says what? God works all things together for the good of those who love him. What does that mean? He's bending all things. He's bending history towards the rescue of his people for his glory. That's what that means. Now, that's a really easy thing to say and an incredibly difficult thing to believe. Really easy to say, really, really hard to believe. So we're going to look at um, two reasons why this is hard to believe and one reason why we should believe it. That's your outline for tonight. Two reasons why this is hard to believe. One reason why I think you should believe it. So first, why is this hard to believe? One of the reasons why this is hard to believe is because so often... God seems absent. He seems, he seems like he's gone. He seems absent. That's the sense that you get, the feeling that you get when you read this passage. God's name is not even mentioned until the last three verses. In fact, in the first 45 verses of the book of Exodus, God is not the subject of a verb. His name is mentioned here and there. He's mentioned kind of in passing, but he is not, he is not mentioned as doing anything until chapter 2, verse 24. And meanwhile, while it seems like God is absent, while nothing is happening, while he's not doing anything, Pharaoh has commanded genocide. The the, the Hebrew people are already under this, this huge burden of slavery, and now he's ordering his people to throw every Hebrew boy into the Nile. They're already under this huge burden, and now sons are being ripped away from their mothers and cast into the Nile. And then, at the beginning of chapter 2, we meet this man and a woman who find out that they're pregnant. And they have the unique joy of realizing, we are going to have a baby. And then they have the very unique terror of realizing when that baby is born that that baby is a boy. And he is a Hebrew. And they are in Egypt. And he has been born under a death sentence. That that is what they are experiencing. And so this, this mother, this woman, hides this boy as long as possible, as long as she can. She does not know what to do. So she puts him in a basket and floats him out into the Nile, which is full of snakes and crocodiles and hippos and all sorts of other animals that I'm sure I don't even know exist in there, hoping somehow that his life will be spared. Now, I, we need to pause here and appreciate the darkness and the desperation of that kind of moment. When a mother puts her child in a basket and pushes him out into the Nile because she thinks, then he'll have a better chance. That's a dark situation. And that is where God's people are. 
maybe my, ba- my baby has a better chance if I put him in a basket and push him out into the Nile. Things are bad. Things are very, very bad. Now, what if the reason that God is not mentioned in the first two chapters, almost the, the completion of the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, is because that is exactly how it feels. That God is gone. He is nowhere to be found. He has left the building. He has left us. I think some of you are familiar with that feeling. Uh, I don't know where you are, God, but it'd be nice if you would show up. I have been asking you to help me with this particular sin or with this particular struggle for as long as I can remember. It would be great if you would show up right now. I have been asking you to heal this particular relationship, to heal this aspect of my family for as long as I can remember. It would be great if you would show up right now. I have been asking you to bring peace and hope for forgotten and suffering people, and it seems like the opposite is happening. Where are you? Are you absent? Where have you gone? King David, one of Israel's greatest kings, he begins Psalm 13 by asking this question, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Are you absent? Are you absent? That's the question that is lingering right here. And the answer that comes back from Exodus 2 is, is, um, am I sometimes invisible? Yes. Am I ever absent? No. Never. Just look at all the ways that God diverts Pharaoh's plans for evil and, and uses them, ends up like doing some kind of jujitsu and, and, and using Pharaoh's plans for evil actually for good. First, Pharaoh commands that every Hebrew, Hebrew boy be cast into the Nile, and that's exactly what Moses' mother does. She obeys that command. She puts her boy into the Nile. And when she does that, the Nile, instead of being a death sentence for him, is actually the means through which he is rescued the means through which his life is preserved. Secondly, Pharaoh says, I love this, Pharaoh says that all the daughters can live. Did you catch that? He says, the boys are, what's a th- are, are the, the ones who are a threat to me. The daughters can live, they're not a threat. And yet, all of the heroes in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus are women. In chapter one, we meet these two midwives and, and they are the rescuers. They are the one who preserve the lives of so many Hebrew sons by refusing to kill those sons when they are born. And then here in chapter 2, we meet Moses' mother and Moses' sister and Pharaoh's own daughter. All of the heroes are women. Pharaoh dismisses them. And God says, no, I'm going to use them in a mighty way to accomplish my purposes. And lastly, the, the edict, the, the, uh, the decree uh, to kill all of the Hebrew boys comes from Pharaoh. It comes from Pharaoh's own house. And in this, I think, just a wonderful stroke of irony, um, it's Pharaoh's own house. It's Pharaoh's own daughter who scoops Moses up out of the Nile and provides him with a place where he can be protected and provided for and live. See, God does seem absent, but at every turn, he is carefully overseeing everything, bending every single event toward the rescue of his people for his glory. Even though he seems absent, he actually is vitally present. 
doing his work. Now, a couple of implications of this, and then we'll move on to the next thing. One implication. This means that Christianity has a very unique view of suffering. That Christianity has, has a very dignifying view of suffering. That it is both real and meaningful. It is both real and meaningful. See, Eastern religions say um, that suffering is, is an illusion. And that life can be meaningful only if you, if you learn to rise above it, if you reach a higher plane. That that is where you find real meaning in life, is to, is to recognize that your suffering, that your pain is actually an illusion. illusion. It's not really real. The Western view, the, the Western secular view, is that pain and suffering are very real. It's survival of the fittest. Uh, but they're meaningless. There is no ultimate meaning or story behind the universe, that it's not headed anywhere, that you will suffer in this life. It will be hard. Uh, but it will not be going anywhere. It is ultimately, ultimately meaningless. But Christianity says, no, no, no. Your suffering is very real. There is much occasion to lament in life. Nearly half the Psalms are Psalms of lament. There is much occasion to be sad in this life. But it is not meaningless. It is not being swept under the rug. It is not purposeless. God is bending it towards your rescue, towards your good for his glory. That's implication number one. Implication number two is it's not just that um, Christianity views this kind of suffering as digni- in a dignifying way, but it also views it in a way that actually gives us rest. Because if, if the God who is overseeing every detail of the Exodus is also overseeing your life, if he is also watching over you, that means you can relinquish control. That you can actually be at rest. You can take a deep breath. That you can be at a point in your life where you, you realize, I do not know what to do next. I do not know what is going to happen. And that is okay. And that doesn't freak you out, and that doesn't undo you, because you recognize that God is bending everything, even and especially when you are confused and do not know what to do next, that he is bending everything towards your good, for your rescue. So, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that God is doing this because often it feels as though he's absent. But the second reason it's hard to believe is because often our failures feel too big, feel too great. I have not actually watched the show Black Mirror, but I have discussed the show Black Mirror with enough of you that I feel like I know everything that happens in it. And in the first episode of the third season of Black Mirror, um, we, uh, we meet this woman named Lacey. And Lacey lives in this future world where everyone's status is governed uh, by their rating on social media. Every, like your social status, your life status is governed by your rating on social media. So every interaction that you have is put under a microscope and then rated. Like every time you go to a restaurant and you do a Yelp review, people are doing that for you as a person. It's terrifying. So, you know, if you, uh, if you bump into someone on the street or you stand too close to someone on the subway and your breath stinks, they can pull out their phone and give you a bad rating. Like, you as a person, they can give you a bad rating. Or if you go to Starbucks and you want to get a latte and you don't like the way the barista looks at you when she gives you the latte, you can, not only can you give that Starbucks a bad rating, but you give that human being, that barista, a bad rating. And the reason that this matters is because everything that happens in this, in this future world happens on the basis of your rating. Everything that happens, happens because you have a good or a bad rating. Um, so, like, if you want a good job, you better have four and a half stars, because nobody's going to pay attention to you if you don't have four and a half stars. 
Do you want to you want to start a new life? You want to um, you just got married? You want to buy a house? You want to get a loan for that house? You better have 4.2 stars, or that loan is going to be astronomically expensive. That everything you do, every moment of your life, is an audition for the rest of your life. Every moment of your life is an audition for the rest of your life, and. As I have discussed this particular show, and in particular this episode with you guys, I have realized that's how you feel. Here in New York City, as a college student, trying to build whatever life it is that you are trying to to get for yourself, you feel as though every moment of your life is an audition for the rest of your life. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Because everything goes under the microscope, and if you slip up at all, if you fail, if you make a bad choice, if you make a wrong decision, you will never recover. There is no room for error. That is the way that you feel. And Moses, here in this passage, is living your worst nightmare. He's living your worst nightmare. Because here is Moses, a person of of great power and of great privilege. He is a Hebrew living in Pharaoh's house. But he's also a person of great compassion. I mean, his, his heart breaks for his fellow Hebrews. And he longs to relieve their bondage. And he sort of sees himself as a, as a rising star, as their eventual hero. And he begins to see, um, he, he sees his window, right? He, he sees this Egyptian beating this other, his fellow Hebrew. And he decides, you know what, this is my moment. And I'm going to take it. And so he looks around, he thinks he can get away with it. And in cold blood, he murders this guy and buries him in the sand. And most commentators agree that this is the moment where, where Moses thinks, like, this is, this is when my star begins to rise, and I'm actually going to be the deliverer of God's people. This is where this story begins. And the very next day, um, he's out, and he sees two Hebrews fighting. And he goes to intervene, and they look at him like, dude, are you crazy? Are you going to try to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And immediately... That feeling that you spend most of your life trying to avoid, that feeling of failure, Moses is drowning in it. He is drowning in it. Why? Because, number one, he has lost the trust of the people that he is trying to help. The people that he so desperately wants to, to help, his own people, he's lost their trust. And he's lost his power, his privilege. Pharaoh wants him dead. And so he has to run and hide. And he thinks, I have blown it. And so he flees to Midian to save his own life. He's in such a dark place that when his first son is born, he names his own son Sojourner because he he feels the weight of his own failure. He he no longer is a rising star. He no longer is a budding hero. He's a sojourner. He has no home. And he feels the weight of that. Now, you, you may remember, you may be familiar with the story, and so you know that this isn't the end for Moses, but it feels like the end for Moses in that moment. It feels as though I have blown it I have no future because I have failed. But even in this failure, God is still at work. He flees, he flees Egypt and he spends 40 years in the wilderness, which will be experience that is essential for him when he does what? He leads God's people out of Egypt and they spend 40 years in the wilderness. That experience is essential for him. But I think even more than that, what Moses learns in the wilderness is he learns humility. If you spent 40 years uh, as a desert gypsy shepherd, you would learn humility also. <laughs> and that's what happens to Moses. Because God, at the end of, the end of Moses' life, God in the book of Numbers says that Moses 
is more meek than all the people on the face of the earth. Now you hear the word meek and you think weak. But that's not what meekness means. Meek means he's humble. He is at peace with himself. He knows his own strengths and his own gifts. But he also knows his own weaknesses and his own limitations. It means that he doesn't have to pretend anymore because God knows his darkest sins, his deepest failures. And it's actually through that failure that he learns this, this kind of inner peace, um, this humility, this resilience. And it's actually only through that kind of failure that you can gain that resilient sense of self. But it doesn't come through failure alone. Failure by itself just makes you jaded and cynical. Success by itself makes you arrogant and afraid. It makes you arrogant because you think, yeah, I am that good, and that's why I'm successful. But it makes you afraid because you recognize, I've got to keep it up. I can't lose this. And any of you who have experienced any, any kind of success in your life, you have felt that pressure. I, I now have to live up to the expectations that I have created for myself. And success by itself, it makes you arrogant and it makes you afraid. But failure combined with a deep knowledge of the providence of God. Failure combined with a deep trust in who God is and what he is doing, that he is bending every detail of your life towards your good. It gives you meekness. It gives you this incredibly deep sense, this resilient sense of self. Why? Because you realize that even your biggest sins and your most catastrophic failures cannot and will not prevent God from blessing you. It can't. Because he is providentially caring for you. So, it's hard to believe. Because often it seems like God is absent. It's hard to believe. Uh, Because often our failures seem too big. And we feel like, if I really want the life, if I really am going to have the life that I want, the life that I need, I'm going to have to take it. I'm going to have to do it, and I better not fail along the way. Otherwise, it'll be gone. So, why should we believe this? We'll close with this. Why should we believe this? Simply put, we should believe this. We should trust that God is doing this because he hears our cries. I love the way that chapter 2 is written because from one perspective, uh, God is always at work. He is at work in every detail, saving his people. But from another perspective, from the human perspective, from the perspective of the Hebrew people, God is not at work. And what finally brings God to the rescue is their cry, is their groaning for help at the very end of chapter 2. What's beautiful about this is that um, what we recognize is that his compassion is not deterred by our sin or by our neediness, by our fears that he has left us or that our failures are going to be too great. Um, His compassion is actually stirred by those things. It actually grows because of those things. One, One theologian puts it this way. Two things stir God's compassion. Our afflictions and almost unbelievably our sins. Where you would run from God in guilt, he would run to you in grace. And this makes all the difference when your heart feels cold and cloddish. Right then, you can know that your weary joylessness, and I would add your fear of his absence or your fear of your own guilt or your fear of your own failure or whatever it is, right in that moment, he is filled with compassion for you. And it moves him. It draws him in. What this means is that what you need 
is not more accountability or more structure or a better plan to accomplish your goals or more willpower or more determination or no, what you need, what I need is to cry out, help. I cannot do it. I need you to rescue me and he will hear you and he will be filled with compassion and he will run to you in grace. And do you know why that is? Do you know why when you cry out to him in help, when you cry out to him in need, do you know why he hears you? Because he ignored the cries of Jesus. See, thousands of years after the birth of Moses, another baby boy is born, also under a death sentence. And that baby's name was Jesus. And King Herod, out of fear in that day, orders that all the baby boys be killed. And so Jesus and his family, they flee. And eventually Jesus escapes death. And then he grows up and Jesus starts talking about this rescue, about this salvation. And that all this rescue and salvation is wrapped up in him, in who he is. That he is the ticket out. That he is the rescuer. And at one point in his life, Jesus knows that he's about to be arrested. And so he falls on his face. He's praying. He falls on his face and he cries out to God. If there, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. And what does God do? Does he swoop in and save him? He's met with silence. And the very next day, as Jesus is, is hanging on the cross, God himself in the flesh, hanging on the cross, dying like a slave, naked and beaten, and the full wrath of God is bearing down on him. He cries out again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. See, God is turning his back on the Son so that you and I can be brought near so that we can be embraced, so that he can run to us with compassion. Jesus is suffering for us, being forsaken for us, so that our cry for rescue can be heard. Only in light of that can you make sense of the good and the bad and the ugly and the seemingly random in your life. That is the only thing that will ultimately help you make sense of it all. Because when you know that God loves you enough that he died for you, that he sent his son to die for you, and you begin to read your life through that lens, you know, no matter what happens, he has not left me, he will not forsake me, and he will bend everything for my rescue. He will risk everything to save me for my rescue, for his glory. Do you know that kind of love? Have you experienced the kind of resilience that comes from knowing that? Thank you.